In light of the new uh, Lord of the Rings Amazon series, I thought I would offer some commentary on an intended sequel to the Lord of the Rings that Tolkien was trying to put together not long before his passing in the 1970s. It is often referred to as a new shadow or the return of the shadow. And in this work, one of the descendants of the guards who preserved the life of Faramir when he was about to be burnt by his father Denethor, the right-hand man, the steward meant to keep the kingdom, is now watching the land of Gondor turn into a horrible, nightmarish place. Only a hundred years after the destruction of the Ring of Power and the fall of the Dark Tower, the Baradur, the descendants of Isildur are following in the footsteps of the one who cut the ring from Sauron's hand. The reign of Aragorn's son brings about a time of forgetfulness. People forget about the evil that had come into Middle-earth through the orcs. Orcs are treated as fables. Children begin to dress up like orcs. And there's a story of a character who, as a child, actually steals a fruit from a nearby tree. And in doing so, falls prey to a kind of repeated original sin, like St. Augustine and the theft of the pears in the Confessions. And reflects on how this is orc work. The children begin to fetishize the working of the orcs and begin to dress up in costumes like them. What is more interesting is there is a dark cult dedicated to Sauron that is rising in the land. And the book ends with the elder figure, this descendant of one of the bodyguard of Faramir, being invited to witness this cult during some of their kind of initiative rituals. It just ends there. Tolkien described this cult as satanic and servants of the black tree instead of the white tree of Gondor. Ultimately, this plot would have been foiled. The satanic rings within the government would have been removed and there would have been a brief period of peace reintroduced. That was Tolkien's imagination for his abandoned sequel to The Lord of the Rings, and it is abandoned precisely because, in Tolkien's mind, it would have been too depressing. It was right that the story should end on the high note, the the eucatastrophic note of the destruction of the empire of Sauron and the dominion of man. But given humanity's fickle nature in light of Tolkien's understanding of original sin, what we see here is a people, in the words of Shakespeare, who are doomed to forget. It is the doom of men that they should forget. And this is something which we come again and again to in cultural history. It was the era 
of the investiture controversy in the Middle Ages, where there was debate who should be the ones who should appoint bishops, religious leaders. Should it be the Pope, or should it be the secular arm, should it be the king? A great example of this is Henry II, the Plantagenet king of England, who wanted to appoint his good buddy, Thomas Becket, to the office of Archbishop of Canterbury to promote the cause of the government in the church and make the church subservient to the government. Well, Henry II wasn't counting on a total conversion of Thomas Becket to his faith. In doing so, when Becket became a bishop, he ended up showing allegiance to the Pope rather than allegiance to Henry. As a result, Becket was murdered in Canterbury Cathedral, prompting scandal throughout the entire world. Horror that the government should try to take control of the church in such a way. And it was believed so deeply that this lesson had been learned. People became so relaxed about it that over time, in light of corruption within church hierarchy, if you roll ahead many centuries later to the Reformation, to the 1500s, people were having no problem to some extent um, with the rise of Henry VIII taking control of both church and state. It was the doom of men that they should forget. And though Thomas More, a layman, and though John Fisher stood up, the vast majority of the bishops at the time of Henry uh, regrettably, regrettably surrendered to the authority of Henry VIII. And in doing so, created a situation where church and state refused together, which would lead to the persecution of both Catholics and Protestants, as time would go on. Like I said, it is the doom of men that they should forget. You go through a period of time where there's a great victory, the victory of Thomas Becket. But over time, people forget the sacrifices of those who went before. They become tired. And then when another Henry arises, when a new power emerges, a new shadow, dare I say, emerges, people become complacent. People become willing to compromise for the sake of peace, almost at any cost. Now, there were many who fought back against the rise of the act of supremacy. But it was certainly something which rolled over much more easily than it would have a couple centuries earlier. And it's even more remarkable. You, you go on forward to another fascinating example it is the rise of the democracies in the old Soviet satellite nations. In Poland, the Solidarity Movement in the 20th century, the late 20th century, in the 80s, which pushed back against the communist government. When Pope John Paul II arrives there, the people shout, We want God. We want God. We want God. The Berlin Wall falls. It seems as though the beliefs of Marxism and Leninism are dead. Statues of Marx are shattered. 
images of Lenin are defaced. There is a sense in which uh, Bill Clinton will say in the 90s, the age of big government is dead. There is this vast optimism about spreading democracy all around the world. And yet, after the tragedy of September the 11th, 2001, we saw people beginning to wield negative, uh, hostile opinions towards religious faith, blaming war and destruction erroneously on religious faith and belief. And what we see instead is the reemergence of these Marxist and Leninist ideas. We see a kind of fetishizing, even of old symbols that would otherwise have never reemerged. I'm, of course, referring to some of the Soviet uh, paraphernalia, the, the sickle and the hammer, which at least one major political figure has previously hung above their door. And this leads us to ask ourselves, as many young contemporaries of mine look back with a lot of fondness on these older movements, or at least with sympathy, if not outright fondness, we have to ask ourselves deeply, even if we are to critique those who came before, are we willing to pretend as though we can build a better world without resting on the shoulders of giants? The truth of the matter is, all of us, like the Gondorians after the War of the Ring, or like us after the Second World War and after the so-called Cold War, we rest on the accomplishments of those who have come before. This does not mean, and I, I must make myself very clear, this does not mean that those who came before us were servants of a golden age that we must return back to the mythical 1950s, supposedly this era of total peace and prosperity, uh, the mythical era of uh, Aragorn, the perfect ruler. No, these people, Aragorn and Lord of the Rings, uh, those who accomplished extraordinary good things during the 40s and 50s here in the United States, did marvelous things, but they were sinners like we are, and equally in need of a savior. Ultimately, it is our part not simply to bulldoze over the past and to call good evil and evil good. The Bible makes it very, very clear that that always leads to the way of death, the way of destruction, or as John Paul II put it, the culture of death. Instead, we must learn from those who came before. And in learning from those who came before, hopefully build a world that is not after the pattern of the fallen order of humanity, but instead to build brick by brick, mile by mile, a society that images God's love for us. And we can only do that by grace falling on our knees, confessing that we have fallen short,
accepting what Jesus did on our behalf, and to have the boldness to convey Christ in the language of people living today. The Bible was intended to be understood by everyone. And yet, we institutionally hid it away in remote language, in Latin, and in liturgical languages. I love liturgy, and I love the traditional Mass, so please don't misunderstand me. But we did hide it away and make it inaccessible. And it was necessary that the Word of God should reach people where they were at. That's why the Franciscans did such a great job during in their renewal period to get the Gospel into towns and villages where people actually met, where they live. This is why people like William Tyndale were willing to lay down their lives to communicate the Bible in the language of the people. And people like John Wycliffe, even if you are not of their theological persuasion, these people were willing to go to extraordinary lengths to ensure that people could understand the Word of God. We now live in an age where we have more technology than Wycliffe or Tyndale or St. Francis of Assisi or Luther ever did. With one click of a button, we can mass-produce media like never before. The real question is, with great power, are we willing to take up the greatest responsibility, and that is conveying love, conveying God, conveying Christ to a culture that erroneously believes that they already know him. The dangerous thing is not communicating to pagans. In fact, pagans, largely in New Agers, are very open to hearing about Jesus. Very open to hearing about Jesus. Because largely their backgrounds aren't filled with catechism and sacramental training where they have gone through the hoops and therefore because they've gone through the ritualistic sects, they think they already know him. No, they're open. It is much harder, much harder to reach those who were nominally churched with the good news of Jesus Christ. Many people have said, Our Father, who art in heaven, without ever fully realizing that they were addressing a person called God the Father. Many people have received the body and blood of Jesus truly present, truly present in the sacrament, without ever realizing that they were receiving the real presence of God become a human being. Many have gone through the rosary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with me, without ever realizing that they were talking intimately and lovingly to the entire time, the mother of the creator of the universe. If you've held communion in your hands receiving, do you know that you are cradling God the way that St. Joseph cradled the infant Christ or the way that Mary cradled the infant Christ in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? You are cradling God in your hands, because God wants to cradle you in his. The fact is, none of us are that aware all the time. 
it would be impossible for us to reach that level of awareness, even if we had spent all of our days in fasting and prayer or penance. However, however, what we can do is remember. The Gondorians, in Tolkien's sequel to The Lord of the Rings, willfully choose not to remember. This is why they become obsessed with the orcs and with the satanic powers of Sauron. It's why our culture and our art and in our music and in our philosophy is obsessed with the Luciferian doctrine of glorifying the self. What is going on is a fascination with God without a desire for the cross. The cross is the only way we will ever understand the extent of love. The Gondorians, in Tolkien's sequel to The Lord of the Rings, want the black tree of Sauron instead of the white tree of Aragorn or of Gondor, the king. Precisely because the white tree always symbolized for the people of Middle-earth sacrifice. In this new Amazon Lord of the Rings series, we're going to see a situation at one point, it might not be in this season, it might be a future season, where Isildur and Elendil, in the island of Numenor before it drowns beneath the waves because of the sins of the people there, where they reach out and take a fruit from that tree. And to do so, Isildur and Elendil are terribly wounded. They're hurt very badly. But to smuggle that one fruit onto those ships so that when the island drowns, a new tree can be planted. And generation after generation has tended that tree carefully, even when it withered away. to keep the memory alive. Do this in remembrance of me. Whereas the black tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, let's put it that way, in this narrative. This tree provides a shortcut around sacrifice an opportunity for power seemingly without responsibility, of pleasure seemingly without consequence. And as a result, we become like the gods we worship. If your highest love in your life is the pursuit of pleasure and power, you will always be disappointed because no creature can ever give that to you. Only the creator can. That's why the rings in Tolkien's imagination are so seductive because what they offer are substitutes for real relationships. Substitutes for actual responsibility, sacrifice, and power. Whereas if you flip a coin... And you look at the way in which Aragorn 
is willing to go through the paths of the dead, or the way in which Gandalf literally dies and is raised, the way in which Sam is willing to abandon his garden at home and to pass through Sirith Ungol and fight off the orcs, a kind of death and resurrection motif, or the way in which Frodo is willing again and again to die to his pride in order to bear this death bringer, this ring around his neck the entire time. What you're seeing is an image of the incarnation, the word becoming flesh. There is hope. There is hope precisely because even if our world has become a kind of perpetual image of the new shadow, the sequel that Tolkien was thinking of, the one element I think we can take away is the overwhelming conviction, the palpable conviction, that if we remember what has come before us, if we learn from what has come before us, we will not fall victim to treating our political ideology, right or left, as though it were our God. Don't get me wrong, those elements are important, but there's some things which are far more important. Yes, there is good in this world and it is worth fighting for, but this good doesn't consist of the things we own, lest the things we own possess us, instead of us possessing them. Instead, the idea rests in protecting the most vulnerable among us, the most marginalized among us, to be good caretakers over the gifts that we have been given, to not put children in harm's way, to defend the innocent, to love our neighbor as ourself. Because to quote Les Miserables, to love another person is to see the face of God. That is the point. That is the point of the cross, reconciliation, atonement at one meant. The word Satan means accuser, hasatan, and the term devil or diabolos means to divide. And the orcs are successful even after they have become extinct as a species in dividing humanity in the days of the descendants of Aragorn by conjuring up a world where we could play a little bit with chaos without supposedly being burnt, but we always will be burnt. C.S. Lewis once said something about prayer. That we, there are only two kinds of prayer that have ever existed. My will be done, and thy will be done. Bob Dylan, however, adds a caveat to that, which I think is quite interesting. Bob Dylan says, you got to serve somebody, and maybe the devil or maybe the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And I think that even when you say, my will be done, you're still serving somebody. Because you cannot fully ever truly serve only yourself. 
we get too bored too quickly. Now, what, what you end up doing when you say, my will be done, to the neglect of thy will be done, what you end up accomplishing is something like the prayer of the impenitent thief found in the Gospel of Luke. I believe that's the 23rd or 24th chapter. I believe it's 23. Where the impenitent thief says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, save yourself and us. And what you hear there, I think, in that person's pain, is their prayer is, if you are who you say you are, if you are truly God, get off that cross and do what God does. I'm willing to serve you, but if you serve my expectations, and I am asking that you serve my anger, my pain, my loss, my anxiety, and my doubt. But God wants to remove the shackles of that anxiety, that pain, that anxiousness, that anger, and that doubt. God wants to liberate us from those chains. To discover behind it that supposed selfishness lies an authentic self, not weighed down by these passing emotions, not weighed down by these, these passing sorts of dread. And that behind that, is the prodigal son running away from the father, looking for God in all the wrong places, looking for Abba in all the wrong places, looking for home far away from home. Instead, Jesus, with his arms open wide in invitation, nailed to the cross, offers that love freely, so much so that the penitent thief can turn and say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And here today you will be with me in paradise. Remember. The most challenging and the most beautiful word that we can meditate upon from the Gospels. We could speak of the truth. We could speak of love. We could speak of the way and the life, but without remembering, without bringing this to mind, these gifts can pass through our fingers. It is by remembering that we retain the knowledge and the wisdom to take up the cross and like the hobbits, Frodo, Sam, Mary, and Pippin, to embark on the journeys that God has planned for us. I hope that you can draw some strength and nourishment from all this. And I hope that these meditations are encouraging. There'll be plenty more Tolkien content as the Amazon series comes. And I look forward to hearing from all of you in the comment section.